Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, let's, uh, let's, let's put ourselves in a, in a situation here, okay? Yeah. All right, we're we're in the podcast chamber right now. Uh-huh. It's you, it's me, it's no man in the uh, all the complex equipment that records the sounds that come out of our mouths. And then there's a window covered up by a curtain. Now imagine suddenly the curtain blows out, and and we're all so, suddenly we're we're being sucked out the window as if this is a pressurized uh, aircraft cabin. I don't know why that would happen, but let's assume there's like a you know a Sharknado on the other side. Is King Kong on the other side of this window? Yeah, King Kong and a Sharknado, most likely. Okay. Yeah. All right. Got it in my head. Go on. Okay. So how do we react? How do we react to the, to su- sudden interruption of normal life? Normalcy is quite literally going out the window, and suddenly life has become this just complete struggle for survival, and every second counts. Okay. Well, I think we have three options here. Okay. One is that you could just shriek and freak out, right, and Mm -hmm. not really do yourself any sort of service here. Always a good option. Okay. Uh, The second thing is you could just stare, you know, sort of into oblivion as King Kong takes you into his clutches and stuffs you into his mouth. Just stare and not do anything. Okay. Well, at least I'm not going to look foolish. Okay. The third thing is you could try to save yourself. You could try to flee from the situation in some way as you're getting sucked out. Maybe you hold on to something, the the window casing, and you try to crawl back into the room and then escape through the emergency exits. And what's interesting is when you when you think of these three possibilities. Yes. And we we can all we all certainly will go through these uh, scenarios in our own head. Maybe not the King Kong Sharknado combination one, but we we inevitably think about what am I going to do when disaster strikes? And we imagine ourselves typically going through that uh, survivalist uh, instinct. We imagine ourselves doing the thing that logically would need to be done to survive. But does it shake out that way? I mean, it does in the movies. Well, all of us think, of course, we would hold on to the the window frame and we would somehow escape the clutches of King Kong and Sharknado. But this is according to Esther Inglis Arkell. She's writing for io9. She says about 70% of people in a disaster exhibit the sort of unusual la-di-da behavior, just staring into oblivion. 10 to 15% freak out and another 10 to 15% react to the situation accordingly, efficiently and orderly. And they do the thing they're supposed to do. So in other words, they get the hell out of Dodge. And that is crazy because you just, you, we're programmed, especially by movies and disaster movies, to 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 not see things breaking down along along those percentage lines. Like the the image that always comes back to me uh, is the original Blob movie, The Blob, mm-hmm. Steve McQueen. There's a scene where the Blob has made its way. You know, it's rather grown at this point. And you know the Blob, right? Big jelly yes, creature that dissolves people makes its way into a movie theater, a crowded movie theater, and then all hell breaks loose. And there's this wonderful scene of. Everyone just rushing out of that movie theater, and then there's a fabulous scene after that, the blob oozing out of the, the theater doors. And the crowd just running in front of yeah, it, Yeah, like right? everybody knows what's up. It's all right, there's a, there's a blob, we're all going to freak out, we're all going to run. And you can, you can view that freaking out and running as, you know, the, as either just completely freaking out and, and making a run for it, or doing mm-hmm. the logical thing. But either way, 
it doesn't line up with these uh, percentage points that we're looking at because 70% of them would be just sitting there being, are we supposed to, this is mean the movie's over? Should I sit there? Hey, hey, you, do, do you know if the movie's over? Are we going to get a refund on this? And meanwhile, you do just get your flesh dissolved off of you by a monster. All right. Well, let me give you a real life example of this. That's kind of a real life example. Well, one that actually happened okay. for real, Z, not on a film. Uh, actually, it's one of the best-known examples of this sort of emergency situation in which people uh, gravitate toward what is called a normalcy bias, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. But in this scenario, we're talking about two planes that collided on a runway in the Canary Islands. It's 1977. And one of the su- survivors, Paul Heck, he grabbed his unresponsive wife, who just sat there, you know, mm-hmm. sort of saying, what? What's going on? And what they did is they, they got, of course, the hell out of Dodge. And on the way, as they are passing other passengers, they're noticing people who are just sitting there staring straight ahead, not doing anything. They're uninjured people. And what happened is that they only had 60 seconds to leave that plane before it was engulfed in flames. And it was a huge, huge fatality for that flight. A lot of people did not get out of it. And so a lot of emergency management personnel look at that case as why. Why did those people who were uninjured sit on that plane and do nothing? Is this... Um, because they were unprepared. Is this some sort of instinct in, in humans, or is there something else going on here? And that's what we're really going to try to get at the heart of today. Yeah, so a normalcy bias is what it sounds like. It's a bias towards thinking everything's okay, minimizing the actual risk and thinking, oh, it must not be that big of a deal. We've all had this, uh, certainly, as you just observe your environment around us. I mean, there are times where you freak out. And you say, oh, that shady person on the street, I bet they're up to no good. Mm-hmm. But then a little reason creeps in and you're like, well, they're, it's probably okay. I'm going to err on the side of just assuming everything is completely normal. Yeah, I mean, we really sometimes underestimate things. And we'll talk more about why we do that. But I wanted to say that uh, according to a National Institute of Standards and Technology study, which was drawn from the interviews with nearly 900 survivors of 9-11, they said that the people who made it out of the World Trade Center waited an average of six minutes before leaving their desks. So what we're talking about here is this idea that you are looking at the odds, you're playing the odds, because really on a day-to-day basis... We don't have really that many um, real dangers in front of us. And we have imagined dangers that we deal with all the time. So it's right. a matter of sort of sussing those out. Well, like I think about this every time I board a plane. Because on one hand, I have every disaster movie I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, plane wrecks happening all the time in those. Because the story of someone getting on an airplane is generally only interesting if there's a creature on the wing of the plane or it crashes into a mountain and people have to eat each other. I mean, you need the drama. But then I, I start breaking it down, and I think I think of uh, I think of football, which I almost never do. But I think how many times have I ever heard on the news? Oh, an entire football team was lost in a plane crash today, or they can't have this football game because half the team went down. Um, you know, cases like this that remind me that hey, pe- these are people that fly around all the time. Um, why do I not hear of them perishing? Yeah, I mean, it takes an enormous amount of mental energy in the first place for some of us to board that plane and convince ourselves that it's a good idea to get into this this metal hole that's just flinging itself through time and space mm-hmm. and and that it's going to all turn out okay. Well, right? that's my theory about the seats. I think the reason that the seats are so uncomfortable 
uh, and, and seem to be designed to, uh, to, to make you uncomfortable is so that you end up focusing on the immediate discomfort of having to cram yourself into that small space and deal with all these people around you rather than the actual uh, uh, potential of crashing into a mountain. Right. So you have a couple of different elements going on there. You have all this, this uh, s- these stories that you've told yourself that mm-hmm. allowed you to get on the plane in the first place. You have distraction. And then when a real emergency happens, you have something called milling, which is part of that playing the odds process, right? Because milling is this idea that people will check in with one another before taking action, saying, is this really a dangerous situation? Are we okay? Yeah. Did you, you see, sure? did you hear something? Is there, does that engine sound weird to you? Did you see that God. creature on the wing of the plane? Because I'm not sure <laughs> that's real. Uh, and what's interesting about this, this milling is that we're not, on one hand, it, it is, yes, an attempt to, to get the best information. You don't want to jump to conclusions. And you, you want to make sure you get the best possible information from a few different people. But on the other hand, you also want to get specific information. You, you keep, you want to keep asking the question, do you get the answer that feels right? The answer that is more comforting. You want somebody to tell you, oh, it's no big deal. Engines make that kind of noise. The creatures live on the wing of the plane. It's just how it works. Here's a kind of a rote example, but if you've ever been, um, in an area where there was a tornado warning, have you mm-hmm. ever called someone up and said, hey, what's the weather like over there? Or, I mean, have you ever called up a, no. you know, a friend or a family member and said, oh, I think a tornado is coming my way? I'm, I'm terrified of tornadoes. So I, if, if I have any reason to believe they're in the area, then I, uh, well, I head to the basement if there's a basement. And if not, I guess I just freeze up and wait for death. <laughs> so, but you batten down the hatches, right? Yeah. Yeah. I know not to go look out the window because it could blast in on me and, Kill me. Well, from that National Institute of Standards and Technology study, uh, another finding was that on 9-11, at least 70% of survivors spoke with other people before trying to leave, the study shows. So, again, it's this milling idea that sometimes it's not just sitting there in disbelief and doing nothing. Sometimes it's just trying to collect data, even in the face of really significant data in front of you saying, this is an extraordinary situation. You should do something about it now. Yeah, I mean, we're social animals, you know, so it makes sense that we would reach out for these answers. Uh, and, and you see this all the time with, with other threats, too, less uh, concrete threats where uh, people end up just going, you know, go online and let, let's find out, let me feed this fear or let me put out, put out the fires of this fear with enough, uh, you know, links from uh, this website or another. Well, I think that's the curse of knowledge, right? Yeah. We all the time are getting sorts of messages, warning messages, especially mm-hmm. here in the United States, other countries make fun of us for this, but you could have a pillow and on that pillow, there's going to be some sort of warning on there that says, you know, please don't suffocate yourself. Right. Uh, just because of all the, the legal battles we have here in the States. Um, so at some point, those messages just, we, they recede into the background because there are so many of them to filter through. And again, there are so many real threats versus perceived threats right. that the mind does want to do a little bit of milling to figure out what's what. Yeah, like is this is this, uh, is this a, a toy that is actually inappropriate for my child that will actually kill him, or is this just one of those situations where it's a bunch of legal mumbo jumbo because you could conceivably uh, strangle yourself with a toy horse? Probably not going to happen. But lithium-ion batteries, yeah, keep them away from kids. Ah, okay. That's my uh, PSA for this podcast. Because they get all juiced up on them. No, no, it's it's horrible for their they're tiny, you know, oh, yeah. like the size of a quarter. And it can do horrible. Actually, children can die from ingesting them. Well, okay, yeah. keep them away. Sorry about the bummer. Cut those hot dogs in half, too. Indeed. All right, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we are going to talk about survival psychology and this idea of psychogenic death. 
All right, we're back. So is there a positive spin here to those 70% just milling about? There is. And, and, and to understand the positive, you have to remind yourself, again, 70% people of the people are just sitting there going, hey, is there something weird? Is there something wrong? 10% are in action mode, know what to do. That's 10 to 15%. And the other 10 to 15% are freaking the heck out. So one positive is that all of those calm people who don't know what's up and are just asking and milling uh, and, and, and have that normalcy bias of you know, fully engaged, they have a calming effect on the freakouts. That's true. And some people would argue that it makes it easier for that 10 to 15% to actually exit even faster because, well... If nobody's clogging the stairwells or other exit strategies, then you can zip through there pretty quickly. Yeah. But then that's the downside as well, is that those 10 to 15% who realize what needs to happen, mm-hmm. we need to get off of this plane before we're all consumed by fire, mm-hmm. they, they could actually have their progress um, um, Im- impeded by the uh, the individuals who are just sitting there asking what's up. They're saying, is there something wrong? Is there something on the matter? And they're saying, no, you need to get out of my way, or and you need to run for it too because we have to survive. Yeah, the ideal situation is that that 10 to 15% would actually get people sort of, you know, a fire under their arses and say, mm-hmm. oh, okay, I see that person in action. I will now follow suit. And we have seen this over and over again in other emergency scenarios, particularly in um, in the World Trade Centers and 9-11 attacks. So um, I wanted to just shift a little bit and go into survival psychology and highlight someone named John Leach. He's a survival psychologist, and he says that we need to reframe the question of survival and, and, and quit sort of looking at these examples of the survivor, not just as they're innately courageous and they have this robust will to live, but rather we should be looking at the people who do not make it and asking the question, why do people die when they don't need to? Yeah, particularly he gets into this idea of psychogenic death, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a really snazzy term, and it refers to a biological process that takes place as in natural death. But it's triggered at a premature stage in the person's life when they're under all the stress. So it's it's kind of this idea of, all right, plane crashes and you have some people who have that strong will to survive. They're a survivor type. They're going to make it. But then there are people who just shut down. They die within the first uh, first uh, uh, one or th- one to three days. And and why is that? It's like it's not like they had a grievous injuries. They just shut down. Yeah, and he's got all sorts of examples that he points to. He talks about a 1994 light aircraft crash in Sierra Nevada, and he says that of the three people on board, one passenger was trapped in the wreckage, so obviously that person couldn't mm-hmm. do anything. Another person had no more than superficial bruising, but then you have the pilot who had injuries to his arm, ankle, and ribs, and it was actually the pilot who left the scene, and for 11 days, he walked and he hiked through the snow-covered mountains before reaching a road and getting help. Now, after that 11 days, both the person who had just the superficial wounds and the person, of course, who was uh, trapped in the wreckage, mm-hmm. they died. But the question was, why did the person with just the minimal wounds perish when he had access to water and food and shelter and could have made a fire? So does it come down to this, like, oh, you're just prepackaged with courage and know-how. Uh, no, according to Leach, it all has to do with the way that you're processing that information and, in some cases, your past experiences. Yeah, he, he makes a strong argument, too, that it's 
it's, you know, we tend to think of, uh, you know, stress comes our way, a threat comes our way, and it's fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. Am I going to punch it in the face or turn tail and run? And he's arguing that it's really more in this situation of fight, flight, or freeze. Am I going to punch it in the face? Am I going to run away from it? Or am I just going to stand there and let it take me? Yeah, because he's saying that there's a lot to take in when a, a trauma happens. He's mm-hmm. saying there's pre-impact, impact, recovery, rescue, and post-trauma. And he said that most people have a certain cognitive load that were that that's sort of normalized to our day-to-day operations, right? Right. We've talked about cognitive load, this idea that you have just finite resources of energy for your brain uh, to operate on. And so he's saying that if you have this extrinsic condition bringing with it all sorts of new data mm-hmm. in a new environment, it's going to crash your brain. So what he said is that what happens is that in that first three days, particularly if you're looking at sort of, you know, this, this situation in Sierra Nevada mountains, um, that those first three days were really important to the survival of the people uh, who were still alive because that's when the executive functions will fritz out. And when that happens, working memory, bloop, that stops. And you have, uh, you know, atten- the selective attention disturbed. And that becomes really important because that selective attention is what allows you to really focus on what matters in Maelstrom, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got, if you're on a plane and smoke is rolling in and people are screaming or just sitting there, uh, you still have a situation that is new to you and you have to figure out what's important here. Now, what's happening when people freeze up? What are we talking about here? Um now, uh, Leach refers to this as cognitive paralysis. So we're talking complete inaction. We're talking uh, uh, just sitting there, uh, not not f- fighting, not flighting, just just shutting down completely. And he does say that you can actually recover from this. Yes. But what becomes so important is that if you if you can't find a way out of that, if you can't find some sort of clarity in there and get back to your working memory, well, then it's just gonna. You're just going to have cognitive dysfunction, which is probably what happened to the survivor in the plane crash who for 11 days sat there. It's perhaps after the third day that his brain just said, forget it. We're going to shut this down. And that's what's so interesting about that idea of psychogenic death, that your brain could fold up in on itself and say, "Okay, I'm just going to draw the covers here. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 again, we we all think we're going to be the survivor type. We mm-hmm. all kind of, you know, even if we're, we have a pretty realistic understanding of our skills. Like if I crashed in a plane in the mountain, I'd have to realize, yeah, I'm probably not going to fashion a bow and arrow and, and hunt a grizzly bear or anything like that. But I like to think that I'll at least have, uh, you know, clarity of mind enough to, to sort of look around and realize what my options are. But maybe that's not going to be the case. Maybe I'm going to freak the heck out or I'm just going to freeze. So the thing that makes the difference here is really the ability to call up patterns. Mm -hmm. Again, that selective memory, or not just the working memory, but that selective attention. And in some ways, training yourself for for the emergency at hand. And when you look at Paul Heck and that example of the two planes colliding, it turns out that he, as a child, was involved in a theater fire. And since then, he had always made sure to check exits no matter where he was. In fact, when he boarded the plane with his wife, he pointed out to his wife, hey, look, these are the emergency exits. And so the idea is that when the plane crash occurred, he wasn't as um, reliant on, on trying to piece together new information. In fact, he could go to that blueprint that he already had stored in his brain and act quickly. Huh. 
So in some ways, you can look at the survivors and say, okay, it may be that they're prepared to some extent, or they've had some sort of life experience that has told them that they should be uh, more aware of their environment and ready to act on it and are subconsciously storing away information that could help them. That's interesting, yeah. The the idea of sort of a, a domestic animal versus a wild animal suddenly put in a situation of extreme danger. Mm-hmm. One has never had to really deal with threats and is completely overwhelmed by uh, the predator in its midst. Uh, the other has always lived in the raw and therefore is more prepared uh, to uh, to act appropriately in the face of danger. Yeah, and when I was reading about Paul Heck's account, I thought, this sounds like my dad. And my dad <laughs> was actually in special ops in mm-hmm. Vietnam. And so in some ways, he has had a lot of the survival training. But this is a guy, my dad, who every time he goes into a hotel will go and look at the map of the hotel that's pasted on the the back of the door in the hotel room, look at the emergency exits, and then he will leave the room and count the number of doors it takes to get to the emergency exit. So he has that information in his mind. Oh, wow. And, you know, he didn't train my brother and I to do the same thing, but in a way we subconsciously saw how he was behaving. And both my brother and I, when we enter a room, most likely we are going to take the seat that is facing the door so we can have a bead on the door oh, to wow. exit. And it's weird. We've talked about this before. So there may be something to that. Okay. So in, in the face of appropriate training and or real-life experience, you're, you're likely to be in a better position to act appropriately in the face of a threat. Right. It's yeah. no guarantee, but it helps, right? Yeah. Case in point, if I may draw another example from science fiction, um, <laughs> in the movie Aliens, the, the mission there into the colony went bad, and what happened? You had Private Hudson freaked out. He was definitely in that 10 to 15% of the freakouts. Mm-hmm. We're all going to die. Game over. You had Lieutenant Gorman. He was definitely in that 70%, though, where he was just, he, you know, he froze up, froze up, just uh, was, a, was asking questions and was of no use. But then you had, uh, meanwhile, you had Hicks and Ripley. They acted responsibly, and uh, they made it to the end of the movie. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right, now, you know, we're focusing on the survivors, which is what we weren't going to do. We're going to focus more on those 70%. And in order to do that, you really have to look at animals and this reflexive ability to go into tonic immobility or thanatosis, which is something that we talked about last week. Yeah, like the basic idea here is you have a bunch of ducks. The foxes move in, attack the ducks, and what do the ducks do? Uh, a number of the ducks, they just freeze up. They play dead, if you will. But it's not a conscious uh, act of playing dead. It's 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 uh, it's just uh, it kicks in. It's uh, it's involuntary. They're just they're, they're just laying there, acting dead for all intents and purposes. The foxes are mouthing them, dragging them off to store their bodies for later, and and this allows them the possibility to escape later on. Though it's not a very high possibility, but uh, apparently it, they stand a better chance playing dead and escaping than you know standing up and fighting against the foxes. Right, and that's that example of more of what is a premeditated response, at least we think in nature, but there are other examples that seem to be reflexive. And when I think about that, I think about the great white, which yes. can enter that tonic immobility state and basically take the vital signs down to the studs Whereas something like the fox or an opossum still has its metabolic rate at its normal rate and doesn't drop it. Yeah, and you also see it in a number of farm animals too, where actual, um, you know, vets and in animal husbandry, where it's useful to exploit this because you know that if you kind of handle the animal the right way, it's going to freeze up and it's going to be very calm and still and essentially give up and submit to your handling. So, in this sense, could humans, that 70%, could they be entering into what would be a sort of uh, reflexive state? 
of of tonic immobility. And in order to answer this question about whether or not this exists in animals, we're going to look at a study called Biological Evidence from Victims of Traumatic Stress. And this was actually published in Biological Psychology by Elian Volkan. Yeah, it's a Brazilian study from uh, 2011. And uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. They looked at uh, 33 trauma survivors, 15 women, including 18 with a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, what happened in this is they were they were all asked to describe the ordeals that they went through in detail, and then uh, the, you know the, they they took these accounts and they transcribed them into uh, basically a sixty second audio narrative, which then a male voice presented in a second person present tense form. So kind of like role playing, you're walking down the street, there's a shadow, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. All right. So <clears throat> each participant's account is then played back for them over headphones while they stand on a platform that records body sway. Uh, their heart rates also monitored during this, and afterwards they're asked questions about how they felt as they listened to this uh, re- to this recording, to mm-hmm. this uh, this this transcribed account of their uh, incident. And uh, what's interesting is the pr- uh, participants who reported a strong sense of being paralyzed, frozen, unable to move or scream, they tended to show less body sway, higher heart rate, and less heart rate variability. Yeah, and this was true across both PTSD and non-PTSD patients, but it was the PTSD patients who were more likely to report feelings of paralysis while listening to these recordings of their ordeals. And so the idea is that those who suffered a trauma, in particular rape victims, may have reflexively entered into a state of tonic immobility, hinting that this kind of frozen state that we see in animals happens in humans when we're faced with a life or death situation. Yeah, that's some some tough stuff to think about. I mean, it's it's really really some kind of dark material to process. It really is, and I think that it gives us a much more nuanced look at how we react in these situations because a lot of us say, "Oh, I'm the wolf in this situation," yeah. or "You're the sheep or the sheepdog." And it's not that black and white. Yeah. Um, as we know, any the ways in which our brain operate depend on the context. It, pa- it depends on past experience. Um, and so, you know, you're not maybe always going to be the, the wolf or the sheepdog in a situation. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the, the big overall take-homes from all of this is just a... a- a, a more realistic understanding of how humans um, react to threats, react to stress, and and what we can do, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a reasonable sense, to prepare for uh, bad times. And of course, it all takes a little bit of preparation, or a lot, depending on the situation, mm-hmm. and then just kind of calming the mind, because otherwise, you're going to be Chaz Tannenbaum and the Royal Tannenbaums taking your family through an endless fire drill your entire life trying yeah. to prepare and not living actually in the moment. But the fire drill is a great example, you know, and, and they stress, you know, have have an emergency plan for your household. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going through the fire drill every night, but but having like a general idea like, hey, if there's something weird, like if you know if something happens to the house, where's where's the, the point where we meet up? You know, mm-hmm. if there's if uh, if if the smoke detector goes off, you know, what do we do? What what is the uh, what is the appropriate response? And you, you maybe you even rehearse that to a certain extent. Of course, the closest thing that comes to mind with that uh, outside of just, you know, workplace fire drill and mm-hmm. school fire drill settings is that when I was, uh, I think, junior high, that was when I had that uh, the deathly fear of being abducted by aliens. And I would run the escape scenario over my head that if I if they come into my room, how am I going to escape? How close am I to the door uh, and, uh, and how close am I to the window? You, sir, probably would have avoided being abducted by an alien and probed. 
I hope so. But then again, that's the trap we all fall into, right? We think we're going to we're going to be the one to to run away from the alien, but uh 70% are just going to lay there and take it. Well, you know, we have talked about the the whole body paralysis that happens oh, yeah, when people think yeah. that they're getting uh alien or abducted by aliens. Um I will tell you one thing. The next time our office building has a fire drill, I will not as I usually do skip out 20 minutes early and go get a sandwich. <laughs> And avoid the whole ordeal. I am going to line up with everybody and go down those endless flights of stairs again and again. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go for the sandwich. Really? Yeah. All right. It's far more effective. And really, that puts me, I think, in the 10 to 15% of people who say, oh, there's going to be a fire drill. I'm going to be proactive about this and not be here for it. And then the other 10 to 15% that freak out and they just start ripping off their clothes and running around. Yeah, you never see that during the fire drills here, but uh, but it does what? remind me of the uh, there was an episode You've not of the. Seen that? No, no, I have not. Uh-huh. But, but then again, I'm always uh, getting the sandwich. Yeah, uh, well, down the street. you miss out, my friend. Yeah, but it reminds me of that episode of The Office where I think there was a, it was a fire drill situation where everyone just goes completely uh, batty, and you know they're 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 knocking stuff over, they're running around like crazy, and uh, and again that was probably uh, that, that was probably uh, an, an exaggeration as well, because they're, they're putting something that would have been 10 to 15% of people freaking out and uh, extrapolating it to everyone. Well, the question is, if media began to, you know, report it in that way via our stories that we tell, mm-hmm. you know, film, books, of this 70% normalcy bias, would we begin to change our behavior if we were more aware of this? That's interesting. You know, I just watched the new trailer for the, uh, the new Godzilla movie. And and it would be interesting. I'm sure they're not going to do it. But what if this new Godzilla movie showed a, a realistic interpretation in which 70% of the people just sat there and were like, "Hey, did you hit? Is there a giant lizard outside? Did you? Is this on the news? It's on. It's on MSNBC. Is it also on Fox News? We should check out CNN too to see what CNN is reporting. Yeah, and then it would be less dramatic. It'd be less dramatic. Yeah, this is. They're not going to let us direct uh, Godzilla too. Nope, show. nope. Someone somewhere just tipped their cigar into yeah. the ashtray and said, "Forget those kids." Forget him. Forget him. All right, so there you go. Uh, a look at the world of normalcy bias and psychogenic death. Uh, let's call the robot over here and do a quick listener mail. Do it. All right, this one comes to us from Hannah. Hannah writes in and says, Guten Tag, Julian Robert. Uh, back in February 2012, you did an episode about Rat Kings. Uh, and I just mentioned Rat Kings in this episode, so this is, uh, this is, uh, this is good. She says, I'm relatively new to the podcast, and I just listened to that episode. I thought you'd be interested to know about something that happened in June 2013. Uh, in Germany, hence the greeting, a squirrel king was found. This was a group of baby gray squirrels that had gotten stuck together at the tails by tree sap that had gotten into their nest. They were successfully separated by veterinarians. One can assume, considering the massive population of squirrels in the world, that this has happened to other litters of squirrels who weren't lucky enough to be aided by humans. Happy holidays, uh, Hannah in Oakland. Well, there you go. All right. Um, that's terrifying to think of, especially when I look at all of the squirrels in my backyard just marauding. Yeah, well, I think when I when we covered Rat Kings, uh, I, I can't remember if we mentioned it, but I remember running across mention uh, in, in our research of a squirrel king, but... It may not have made it into the podcast because, really, you're already talking about, about rat yeah. king. That's enough <laughs> cryptozoological uh, mumbo-jumbo, or not, to uh, to discuss in one podcast without getting into the squirrels. But uh, but the squirrel example brought up here uh, is is very interesting and maybe a little less frightening. Perhaps. Perhaps slightly less. Uh, I mean, if, if the rat king uh, is a portent of death and disease and medieval plague striking down uh, your city, what does the, the squirrel king represent? 
home values are going to dip. I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem like it would be near as uh, dire as my. Thing. I'm still thinking about it. Okay. Hey, I wanted to mention that before we started podcasting, our video producer, Tyler, came in here. And he filmed us chit-chatting. And that's when we were actually talking about the Squirrel King. So if you guys want to, excuse me, the Rat King. So if you guys want to check that out, make sure to go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com because no doubt the video is hanging out there. Um, I have one quick, super quick email that came through. This is from Jennifer. And the subject line was Sasquatch. And it simply said, Spirit Totem, only those meant to see will see be well. Sounds good to me. I know. I loved it. Thank you. Uh, cryptic and, and delightful, and I'm not sure if that is in jest or not, but it doesn't matter. It's pretty great either way. All right. On that note, let's go ahead and close it out. Uh, hey, you want to get in touch with us? You want to check out this uh, video that uh, Julie mentioned of us uh, prepping for this episode and uh, just getting uh, comfortable on our chairs? You want to listen to all of the podcast episodes uh, in the past, such as that Rat King episode, such as the episodes to do with sleep paralysis? Uh, all of them. They are available at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, along with our blog post and just about anything we're doing, as well as links out to our social media accounts on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Google+, on YouTube, where Mind Stuff show go check all those things out if you if, if one of those is your favorite social media site follow us uh and, and we'll try and share stuff with you yeah and if you would like to share some of your thoughts with us you can do so at blow the mind at discovery.com for more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com